0: Back to Matthew we turn, and back to the Sermon on the Mount, back to Matthew chapter 7. This is at page 812 in your pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. We've already pointed this out a couple of times, but uh, Jesus has concluded the main body of his sermon, of the sermon we call the uh, Sermon on the Mount, with what we call the Golden Rule. And now the ethical instruction, the description of the greater righteousness that must be Ours, if we are true disciples of Jesus, is finished. We're now making our way through the conclusion of the sermon in which Jesus faces us all with some very important decisions, choices. Choices, important because they are of eternal consequence for us and for our children. Last week it was a choice of gates and roads, and uh, to find life, not destruction, we learn we must enter by the way of the narrow gate, which is Christ, and we must continue down the narrow way, which is hard. But once those choices are made and followed, our choices aren't yet finished, are they? Would that they were. There is also a choice of companions. Indeed, we could put even more strongly, we could say a choice of guides. Who will be our teachers, our leaders, our shepherds on this path? With the strongest of language, Jesus punctuates and underscores for us the desperate importance of making the right choices here. Of making the right choices and a warnings against the counterfeits who will present themselves aplenty as good guides, but who are in fact nefarious frauds, who would not only mislead you, dear flock, but would devour you, the sheep, along the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word comes to us in all manner of ways, all different parts, having different messages, and when it comes, when, when our Savior comes to us with words this strong and of warning, we pray that we may listen very, very carefully, heed these warnings and follow them. Keep us on this narrow way, we pray, Father, give us good guides, give us wisdom to discern who are the good guides. As we apply the Lord's instruction to ourselves now, we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. I think that verses 21 through 23 certainly apply, extend from the text we're going to read today. So we're going to go all the way through verse 23, uh, beginning at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's been said that if you're going to place poison on a shelf, where you have healing medicines, you had better label it clearly. Well, that's certainly true when it comes to false teachers in the church. They must be identified clearly before they do any harm or, as the case may be, any more harm than they have already done by the time you identify them. That's Jesus' point here. False teachers exist and would exist in the church. False teachers are are no no mere theoretical problem. Jesus is not doing what some of your neighbors uh, do who put up signs on the fence, you know, beware of dog, when in fact the fiercest thing on the premises is a pampered parakeet. No, false prophets are real. They deceive real people, people in the church, and that with regard even to salvation itself. We find them already in the Bible, don't we? These false prophets. In the Old Testament, the writing prophets from Isaiah to Malachi are often countering teaching and the influence of false prophets and false priests who are also teachers in the church. We'll be reminded time and again as we make our way through this Gospel of Matthew that Jesus considered many of the church leaders of His day. Pharisees, Sadducees to be such. He called them, remember, blind Leading the blind. He made it clear that as the gospel spread throughout the world, you could count on this. So would false prophets increase. And so they have. In in nearly every letter of the New Testament we read about them, these false teachers who make their appearance cause serious problems for the church, even in the days of the apostles. They're called pseudo-prophets if they claim divine authority. Pseudo-apostles, if they claim apostolic authority. Pseudo-teachers, even pseudo-christs, if they deny that Jesus is God the Son come in the flesh, or if they had messianic pretensions of their own. But they were all pseudo. And Pseudo in the Greek means lie or falsehood. It was and is a perennial danger to the church that the church will listen to men who purport to be teachers of the truth but who in fact lead the church into killing error. In the earliest written materials that have survived from patristic Christianity, the body of writings known as the Apostolic Fathers, written at the end of the first century and into the first third of the second, there is already great concern about teachers who were leading the church astray. And the 2,000 years of church history, as you know from your own reading, has brought more of the same as the gospel made its way. Through the, to the four corners of the world, heresy has gone right alongside, accompanying the truth everywhere it's gone. Men purporting to teach the truth of God brought false teaching about God, about Christ, about salvation, about the Christian life, about the return of Christ, about the judgment to come. The history of the church has been a long, long, dreary history of controversy with false teachers. They've caused incalculable damage and very often their appeal was that they offered an easier way than that narrow way we heard about last week from our Savior. They make the gospel and the Christian faith easier to believe, you know, more reasonable, more to the liking of the world and of the flesh what unbelievers want what what unbelievers want uh, is not the narrow road is it about which jesus has just told us in this sermon they want the broad path and these false teachers are more than willing to bring out the construction crew and add a few lanes the Christian life is described by Jesus as in many ways this narrow road unattractive and utterly unappealing to the unbeliever. The question is, of course, and we have to ask, why keep Christ at all? You know, why, why, why do false teachers want to keep Christ in the picture Well, the only explanation must be that Christ is so titanic a figure, you know, so attractive that they don't want to part with Jesus completely. So they retain the name, and they retain what they like about Jesus, but then with a twist. Christianity with a twist. Christianity made palatable Which, by the way, I should tell you, is the devil's absolutely favorite religion. Satan loves Christianity with a twist. It's his favorite. Christianity made more believable to unbelievers, more sedate to the sleepers, more flashy to the worldly, more inclusive to the universalists, more accepting of the rebellious. Contemporize Christ and make him the means of achieving your best life now. Your cheerleader, your buddy, your means of success. These are some of the examples of what our modern false teachers are doing with him now. Beware. Beware of them, Jesus says. Don't lend your mind to them or even your ears. Don't toy around with their teachings. Don't let their insidious half-truths take roost in your heart. They are dangerous and they are deceptive. They're dangerous first because he says they are in reality wolves. Jesus chooses this metaphor here very deliberately. The very word would send a cold chill and alarm into the hearts of most of that agrarian culture who would have seen the bloody bared fangs of a wolf standing over a ravaged sheep at one time or another or had at least heard the stories that came back from the pastures on the lips of the shepherds. As much as Christians might tend to dislike this imagery, maybe you're not even too wild about it, we are sheep. We're sheep. We're lambs, Jesus says, very vulnerable, oftentimes far too gullible. So we, Jesus' flock, are dependent on good shepherds to protect us from wolves. Good pastors feed the sheep and, and the flock of God that the good shepherd assigns to them and defends the flock from ravenous wolves But the problem, Jesus goes on to demonstrate, is that these wolves, these false teachers, these false prophets, are not only dangerous, they're also, second, very deceptive. They come, verse 15, in sheep's clothing. The dogs and the pigs we read about back in verse 6, they're not so hard to pick out, are they? They're pretty obvious. But these wolves, they sneak into the flock in sheep's skins disguised as sheep they don't come and announce themselves for what they are no they come claiming to teach the truth i'm here to tell you the truth the german pastor and martyr dietrich bonhoeffer wrote of the wolf that quote knowing that christians are credulous people he conceals his dark purpose beneath the cloak of christian piety hoping that his innocuous disguise will avert detection. There is a, this, this feigned piety, this, this phony shell, empty shell of phony godliness. Even the language of orthodoxy these, four, these false shepherds use, of historic orthodoxy, but of course vacated of its meaning, We see this in our own Presbyterian history. How wolves, the wolves of theological liberalism, have insisted that they believe the Word. And they believe in revelation. And they believe in redemption. And they believe in resurrection. But with them, these things, these words, have a completely different meaning than what they have for us. And for, more importantly, the Bible. Sort of like when a Jehovah's Witness, you know, looks you square in the eye and he says to you, of course I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but he means something totally different from what you mean by the Son of God. These wolves are dangerous and they're deceptive and because they're so deceptive they're very dangerous. So beware, Jesus warns. Be on your guard. Watch. Be vigilant. Do not let yourself be dazzled by a teacher's charm or his brilliance or his academic degree or even his church position. Look deeper. Yes, make judgments. Apparently, when Jesus said, judge not, just a few verses earlier, he did not mean to tell us not to make any judgments of any kind at any time. No kind of discrimination, because now he calls you and me to do exactly that. To judge a tree by its fruit. So he's making a shift now, you might say. You've probably noticed the shift. He's, he's, he's shifting from what they wear to what they bear. How will you know whether you're dealing with a false prophet, a false teacher? Well, sometimes you won't, not perhaps for a while. Entire churches have been misled, sometimes for years by pastors who are wolves, but have managed for a very long time to keep that sheepskin disguise from slipping. Others, after generations of faithful instruction in the faith and powerful exposition of the truth from their pulpit, have acquiesced in a single generation. I've told you before about the church in Kiltern in Scotland where uh, there's a stone near the entrance to the church. It reads this way. It says, this stone shall be witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring an ungodly minister in here. Of course, a stone in a churchyard placed by one faithful generation committed to the faith once delivered to the saints is no true safeguard against a future generation's capture or even surrender. Jesus says that there must be vigilance and that there is a way to pick out a wolf. Sooner or later, you will know. How? Well, there's this test. Jesus says you will recognize them Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Check the fruit. It's a true test because as Jesus explains, our grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, Jesus says, by their fruits. This is not rocket science, dear flock. This is not even complicated agronomy here. Noxious weeds like thorns and thistles cannot produce edible fruit like grapes and figs, and trees are known by their fruit. I love the fall. I mean, the season, the fall. I love the smells. I love the crisp air, the changing leaves, the tastes, even of fall. And certainly, one of the most exquisite pleasures. Of fall must certainly be fresh apple cider. Yesterday, and my mouth is watering as I'm talking about, it, yesterday Debbie and uh, Rebecca took a trip to Reed's Orchard and came back with half a gallon, a, a half gallon of the uh, liquid gold that will find its way into a hot, spiced cup and then passed my lips this afternoon just before I proceed to a very rigorous inspection of my eyelids from the back. Uh, maybe you've heard of uh, Reed's Orchard. Maybe you've been to Reed's Orchard. And if so, you've seen their, their manicured rows upon rows upon rows of fruit trees. And, and for generations, in fact, since the late 19th century, the Reed family has been keeping and tending those orchards. When they walk up to a tree and take hold of its fruit, they instantly know don't they? The condition of that tree. It's unmistakable to them. And conversely, when they see a diseased tree uh, before the season, they know that when they come back at harvest time, if they leave that tree there, there will not be fruit worth eating on its branches. The fruit tells the condition of the tree. And the condition of the tree determines the condition of the fruit. Well, then what, what Jesus, we ask, what is the fruit? What's the fruit? What form does the fruit take in the life of a teacher, of a pastor, by which we must judge him? Well, it seems that here the Lord intends to give us an ethical test. An ethical test. Though it is possible, of course, that by prophet's fruit, he may also have in mind his teaching. That, after all, in other places uh, is the test. The test is doctrinal. If a teacher departs from the doctrine found in Holy Scripture, he is a false teacher. Jeremiah, the prophet, contrasted false prophets and true prophets in just those kind of terms. False prophets, he said, speak in visions from their own minds. But the Lord's prophets, he said, stand in the counsel of the Lord. The Lord taught him this, hear his word and speak from the mouth of the Lord. So let the prophet, Jeremiah goes on, who has a dream, tell the dream, or God rather, and let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat? So there's the doctrinal test. Here, however, it seems clear enough from the context that Jesus' accent is falling on the ethical, on the behavior, the outcome of the teacher's teaching the profession the claim of a teacher just as the profession of any of us individual Christians can be tested by the way he lives by his life and by the way he counsels others to live and in the case of a Christian leader to a certain extent even the fruit that their teaching bears in the lives of their hearers Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul also speaks of fruit? Do you remember where he does that? The Apostle Paul writes about fruit. Do you remember where? In his letter to the Galatians, where he writes about the fruit of what? The fruit of the Spirit, yes. So where you find a Christian teacher or pastor who is meek and who is gentle in resemblance to Jesus, who is loving, who is patient, Who is a man marked by kindness, by goodness, by self-control, you have reason to believe him to be true and not false. But where these are missing and the opposite is true, where a man is marked by enmity and by impurity. And by jealousy and by self-indulgence, you will be justified to judge the tree, in that case, too, by its fruit. Let me also carefully add, you caught it a minute ago when I said it, we may add that we may look at the fruit of his teaching in others' lives, too. What is the effect of this man's teaching in the lives of others, of their followers? Over time, does it engender love? And obedience, and joy, and peace in the lives of those he influences? Or does his erroneous teaching eat its way like gangrene through the body? To use a simile that Paul employed in his letter to Pastor Timothy. Does their teaching upset, or does it establish the faith? of their hearers, does it promote godliness or ungodliness, unity or division, love or hate? Some of these questions you know are going to take much longer to answer than others, aren't they? A couple of weeks ago I had opportunity to talk with the current generational owner of Wick's Organ Company an Illinois company that has been building pipe organs nearly as long as Reed's family has been tending trees here in Davis County. As I looked at the large building, the large plant that once employed dozens of employees building pipe organs all day, every day, it was a matter of deep sadness that the place is pretty much shuttered. The demand, you see, for real pipe organs is not nearly what it was a few days ago, the uh, guitar and the drum set having displaced the king of instruments from Christian worship. As we talked and it became clear that he is a Christian brother, our conversation turned to Europe where organ building companies are now either out of business or, what few are left, are down to skeleton crews. Why is that? because the great cathedrals and the churches of Europe are now empty, silent, except maybe for the chatter the echo of the voices of, of tourists. Great cathedrals in England in which the true worship of God once reverberated to fill every nook and cranny, every space of those sanctuaries, worship rising from worshipers gathered in mass to worship God in spirit and truth. Places from which the Reformation once swept across the whole globe are now museums. What could be the cause of such a grievous development as this? Well, it's not hard to trace. Ministers stopped preaching the gospel. False shepherds more interested in dissecting the Bible than after the fashion of German higher criticism than in proclaiming its truth, took pulpit after pulpit after pulpit after pulpit. Theologically liberal wolves came in and took over the pulpits of the churches, wrapped, of course, in sheep's clothing and clerical garb until the pew was as rotten as the pulpit. What we see in Europe right now is is unmistakably the fruit of false shepherds and it is a clear warning to us. The likes of that stone at the church in Kiltern, a witness against the parishioners of Owensboro if they bring an ungodly minister in here. Judge the tree its fruit. A careful scrutinization of the character and the conduct is what we're after. And beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Now before we leave off, let's be wise about how we apply what we've just heard, shall we? Jesus is not teaching us that we should be suspicious of everyone. Or that we should take up heresy hunting as a hobby. It's a rotten hobby. This is not the point. But it is a solemn reminder, isn't it, that there are false teachers in the church. Jesus is not hanging beware the dog sign where there are only parakeets. As we love the church for whom our Savior died, bled, and gave his life to save, as we love our children, as we love our children's children. Let us take our Savior's warning here fully and seriously. Beware of false prophets. So obedience to this command is part of what it means to live the righteous life that Jesus has been calling us to since word one of this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount. And the presence of pseudo-pastors and false teachers in the church to this day who want to keep Christ's name but change His teaching is a great demonstration of the fact that He is and most certainly continues to be the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.